0: Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question, while providing real solutions for a biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Charles Roberts and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Hello and welcome to another Out of the Question podcast. Today is Friday, March the 9th. I'm Pastor Charles Roberts, and I'm joined by my co-host, Andrea Schwartz. Andrea, how are you today?
1: Doing well. We're enjoying almost spring here in California, almost spring.
0: <laughs> almost spring. Okay, well, we're we're enjoying a resurgence, maybe enjoying is the wrong word, a resurgence of cold weather here in the Deep South. So uh, that will be changing, though, as will our time frame, uh, Daylight Savings Time, for those of you and us who are part of that program happens uh, this weekend. Um, I hate but...
1: it personally. I I hate when we change and there's actually some research that says more accidents and illnesses happen around this time because it upsets people's natural biorhythms and for me, even though a lot of people like the longer daylight, I don't like it because I usually know it's time to cook dinner when it gets <laughs> dark and in the summer <laughs> it doesn't get dark until later and now we're eating very late.
0: I know uh, that was one of the great things I among many that I liked uh, about living in Arizona didn't have to worry about daylight savings time and uh, for one year, for that one time frame I had the same time zone as California because it put us both three hours behind our eastern daylight time. I just Since think Arizona- it's
1: interesting that we legislate time. I mean we're used to people taking on governments, taking on that which belongs to God, and God created time the same way he created everything else, and we've just decided we could change it around.
0: Well, and that's a good segue into our topic today, because the reason um, almost all of the people of these United States go on daylight savings time is because it's a law, and uh, states are required to do that, and that's sort of the topic we are discussing today, and the issue of law and grace, because a lot of Christians have this idea that the Old Testament is the section of the Bible that is concerned with laws and rules and regulations, but in the New Testament, all of that is completely done away with, and we are just walking around in the absolute freedom of God's grace, and we don't have to worry about any of that stuff as long as we have Jesus in our heart or some some version of that type of description. That's highly simplistic, I realize. And we'll get into why people think the way that they do about that, but also hopefully clarify for our listeners what, in fact, Scripture really says on this issue. Because out of that question, are we under grace and not law? Behind that question is, can a person really live in any society or family context without some type of law?
1: So I think it would be a good idea to define both terms. Law implies that there is a standard that must be conformed to. And a law can either allow something or make provision that something should occur, or it can make provision that something should not occur. And interestingly enough, if you go to the Westminster Catechism, the definition of sin is an act of omission or commission that is a transgression of the law of God. So even if we're going to define things like what's good and what's bad law becomes an inescapable concept.
0: Yes, the Shorter Catechism puts it, in addition to what you said, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And in saying that, it's not ginning up something that is not in Scripture. It's squarely based on what the Scripture teaches. Now, uh, grace is generally understood to be some sort of favor or positive disposition or blessing that someone enjoys or receives. And typically the Christian understanding of it, or or short definition, is that grace is unmerited favor. And so the issue is whether these two things actually oppose each other, or more importantly, what is the biblical conception of how these things work together? Does one exclude the other? Has one replaced the other? Before we get to that, though, I want to mention something in your definition. And quoting the catechism, I went to the trouble to look up in the 1828 edition of Webster's Dictionary, the definition of the word law. By doing that, I learned this from our great friend, R.J. Rushdooney, who frequently pointed out how older dictionaries contain definitions of words that indicate an understanding of terms uh, that are very different sometimes than what we have in modern dictionaries, and in Webster's 1828 dictionary, the first Line definition of law is this a rule, particularly an established or permanent rule prescribed by the supreme power of a state to its subjects for regulating their actions, particularly their social actions. Now, if that's all it said, that would be in, an interesting thing to discuss. But it goes on it says, Laws are imperative or mandatory, commanding what shall be done, prohibitory, restraining from what is to be forborne, or permissive, declaring what may be done without incurring a penalty. And then notice this the last statement is, The laws which enjoin the duties of piety and morality are prescribed by God and found in the scriptures. Webster's 1828 Dictionary. Isn't that interesting?
1: Did you also go to a modern dictionary and find the definition of law? Because I doubt sincerely, for sure, the third definition or the third comment or example that he gave would be present.
0: It is not. I I, I didn't, on this occasion, did not. I, I actually had done this. Some years ago, when we were still homeschooling our children, we actually had a copy of that dictionary that we used, and I had looked it up then, and no, the first-line definition in a modern dictionary says absolutely nothing about duties and piety and morality being prescribed by God and found in the scriptures.
1: Webster had some presuppositions that included that he didn't make up the rules.
0: Exactly. There's an understanding that law exists. It is a reality. It is inescapable. It is unavoidable. The question is, whose law under what jurisdiction do you find yourself? Now, you know, I think part of the problem is that we, in our modern context, we typically think of law and attorneys and courts. I don't know about where you live, but here where I live, the the local TV networks are just flooded constantly with TV commercials for attorneys. And when people think about law, that's what they think about. And that's a part of it, certainly, people going to court and and that sort of thing. But law has a much broader application and definition than just the fact that somebody ran a stop sign and got a ticket, so they broke the law, quote-unquote.
1: So as a pastor, I'm sure that you have some insight as to why for the Christian, not necessarily for the non-Christian, although the non-Christian oftentimes is much more consistent than the professing Christian. Why is this concept of law necessarily a negative rather than a positive?
0: Well, I think that when people generally put forth this statement, we're not under law anymore, we're under grace, they think that they are just simply quoting what Paul wrote in Romans 6.14, which is, for sin doesn't dominate you any longer, since you're not under law, you're under grace. And that seems to slam the door on the subject. But the thing is, what he is saying there has a larger context, and I'm going to quote that passage, Romans 6.14, from the Amplified Bible. Now, that's not a translation that I use often, but I consult a lot of different translations, and I thought this one, which seeks to bring out some of the deeper meaning of some of the terms, you could debate whether they're successful at doing it or not, but at any rate, I think they did a very good job with this one. This is Romans 6.14 from the Amplified Translation. For sin shall not any longer exert dominion over you, since now you are not under law as slaves, but under grace as subjects of God's favor and mercy. And what I like about that is that it stresses the relationship you have to God. Either way, you are, un- you are a subject. You are under authority. And let's take the example of the ancient Israelites, the ancient Hebrews, when they were slaves in Egypt. If you've ever seen the Ten Commandments version of uh, the movie with Charlton Heston, it's sort of co-opted by a modern concept of freedom. I mean, you'd think somebody with the 1960s Civil Rights era had written the script. Oh, of course, the movie was made earlier than that. Because the, the theme is constantly freedom. We must be free. We want our freedom. But if you look what Scripture says, Moses went to Pharaoh and said, you let us go free so we can go worship our God. We can go in the desert and worship our God. In other words, We don't want to be under your authority and worship you. We want to be under the authority of God and worship him, the true God.
1: So do you think that possibly the ready acceptance of the catch-all phrase, we're not under law, we're under grace, speaks to a part of all of us that seeks to be irresponsible? In other words, we never have to take into account what it is we do that we should do or what things we're doing that we shouldn't do and just basically put the blanket over us that says, well, we're now Christians, and so God likes everything we do.
0: I think that that would explain a rather simplistic, immature Christian way of looking at things, or people who maybe they're not really followers of Jesus at all, but they think that they are, and they just simply dismiss any concern that they ought to have about their behavior with saying, well, I'm not under, well, I'm under grace and let's just categorize that as one understanding and one reason people would say that, but there's another, and I think this is the more significant, because there are sincere Christians who think this way, and let's talk a little bit about that. One of the reasons that there has been a pervasive type of thinking along these lines is the influence of a Christian theological movement that arose In the 1800s, called dispensationalism. I'm sure most of our listeners are familiar with it. But to very grossly oversimplify it for our purposes, you know, we aren't devoting this entire discussion to that. The dispensational theological perspective divides scripture up into seven eras or dispensations, in which God is working out His plan or His program. The problem is, is that from their standpoint. The one dispensation arises and man rebels, like you know, the the dispensation of the Adamic age. Adam rebels, so God comes up with another age or dispensation. Under Moses, that was the age of law. Again, not going into all the details, they also define an age of grace, and that is the age in which we are in. And in their scheme of things, the previous dispensations do not connect in any way, shape, or form with the one that you are currently in. So, if you're on the age or dispensation of grace, the age of law, which is connected to Moses and the Mosaic law, has nothing to do with you whatsoever. Now, different gradations of that, but that's generally where that thinking comes from. And, of course, in the early days of dispensationalism with Schofield and Moody and all the rest of them, they have these charts that make it all look very scientific with flow charts and arrows going around. But the question remains, what did Paul mean by that? Because they do try to ground what they're saying in Scripture. The problem is they have not properly understood Scripture or the Bible as a whole. Because let me read you something that Paul wrote later in the same book of Romans. In Romans thirteen eight to 9, this is from the ESV translation, he says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, again, if we just simply stop there we would come away with all kinds of mistaken ideas. But Paul continues, he says, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in the word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he clearly, in Romans 13, connects loving your neighbor, loving God, the whole concept of love is directly related to law. And if I'm going to love my neighbor, what does that look like? It has a visible, tangible appearance, and it means I'm not going to steal my neighbor's wife, I'm not going to steal my neighbor's property, I'm not going to murder my neighbor. That involves law.
1: Exactly, and I know for myself, when I was converted, I understood that the Bible constantly was calling us to righteousness. And I later learned that a synonym for righteousness could be justice. So we're called to be those who are pursuing justice and living according to justice. But I couldn't quite figure out how you were supposed to discover what that was. And putting the connection together between God's law and God's requirements was huge for me because now instead of wondering if I was holy because the Bible calls us to be holy, suddenly I had a road map that said, not that I was ever going to earn anything from God, because I was unable to do so, but it would be a way in which to demonstrate my love for God.
0: Yes, love is tangible. It is demonstrable. It is not simply a feeling. And we have talked about some of that issue in our previous podcast, where the current American Christian spirituality all is focused on inner feelings, and this has become the overarching theme in a lot of Christian experience is how I feel about things rather than how my feelings drive me to either obey God or not. Let's talk about some other scripture because Paul was not simply the only one who wrote on this matter. Our Lord Jesus himself spoke about this in John's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 15, He very famously said, if you have love for me, you will what? Keep my laws. Now, that's one translation. Others say keep my commandments. It means the same thing. So very clearly in that one short statement, Jesus has made it very clear what it means to love him. It means you keep his commandments. What are his commandments? Well, they're summed up in what we call the Ten Commandments. And then later on in the same chapter, he goes on further to explain, he who has my laws and keeps them. He it is who has love for me, and he who has love for me will be loved by my Father, and I will have love for him, and will let myself be seen clearly by him. So, he who has my laws and keeps them it is he who has love for me. Those are the words of Jesus.
1: It seems pretty straightforward to you and me on this, and I actually can remember when, as I just mentioned, it wasn't straightforward. So, do you think that people, number one, who've been taught a particular way, feel that if they say that we are under the commandment of God to follow his laws, that somehow or other we have demeaned Calvary?
0: No, not at all, because the whole premise of Calvary is the fulfillment of law, the law of justice. And again, we have to understand that some people start out at the beginning with a misunderstanding of what these things are. And of course, if someone doesn't really understand the nature of salvation, the nature of justification, The nature of Calvary, in a more simple way of putting it, then when the true biblical discussion is brought forth, they may be confused or think that there's something wrong, only to find out that this is what Scripture actually teaches. And if I may just say broadly, this is how many people come to the reformed faith and calvinism generally is they find themselves in some church or other that does not embrace the full teaching of scripture and when it's presented to them the light of God's mercy does shine on them and they say wow i never realized this is exactly what it is and i've i've understood now the nature of this is that the mercy God has shown me in Christ Jesus is a mercy grounded in the fact that he is a just god and justice implies law unavoidably
1: So if you understand the many aspects or facets of salvation, salvation is much more than the beginning of the Christian life. Well, this person was saved. She asked Jesus into her heart, and now she's a believer. Well, the conversion of an individual is when they become aware of the fact, through repentance and faith, that God has changed them. So, The theological term is justification, that we, when we're in Christ, when God looks at us, instead of seeing our sins, he sees the payment that Jesus made. And I think a lot of people, as you said, when they come to the Reformed faith, realize that there's a lot of extras that have been put into other ways of looking at things. And so they say, I can't do anything to save myself and that is a theologically sound position. But then when someone says, okay, that's the beginning, now you have years to go possibly before you end this life and you go to heaven. So what are you supposed to do? That's where the law comes in.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you raised that because one facet of this discussion is that those of us who understand and at least try to teach what scripture says about this, sometimes are accused of legalism or works righteousness, as if we believe that the scriptures teach that you have to obey the law and keep the law in order to guarantee your salvation. When Jesus made it very clear, I can do nothing better than to quote his own words again, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In other words, the love for Christ is first. It's given to you. If you have been converted, if you are a repentant person and you have received the mercy and grace of God in regeneration and justification, then that is why you love Christ. But the evidence that that has happened to you is that you will obey his commandments. And let's use an example, again, from the woman taken in adultery. Jesus says to her, Is there no one to accuse you? No, there's not. Then go and sin no more, he says to her. I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. That is the way the Shorter Catechism phrases it you are, true repentance includes endeavoring after a new obedience.
1: Which of course means that you had to change from something. So a conversion, when water goes from steam to liquid to solid, we call that a conversion. It looks different. Nobody confuses ice cubes with steam. We'll say it's the same essence of H2O, but different forms of it. So when a person is converted They were heading in one direction, and now they're heading in another direction. Well, something governed that wrong direction, thus something has to govern the new direction.
0: Yeah, the passage where Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, there have been several translations that I think have gotten further into the Greek text there, and there was one, I can't remember which translation it is, change the way you think and behave rather than be transformed by the renewing of your mind, which may be the literal meaning of the Greek words, but a fuller definition or fuller meaning of it is just that. Your thinking needs to be changed, and by that, your behavior will be changed. This is Paul writing. This isn't somebody who believes in works righteousness, quite the contrary, but the connection between obedience and love of God have not disappeared under Christ. If anything, they've been highlighted and reinforced The whole issue, though, of can we just simply live without any kind of law, can't we just walk around with feelings of love and peace and all this sort of thing, is sort of a pipe dream. It's a humanistic pipe dream, and it's contradictory because no matter what context in which you may find yourself, you are obliged to follow some law, some context, whether it be the law of your own mind, as you are a law unto yourself, you've got some standard by which you are going to define your behavior. But technically, if people would be honest, they define their behavior even though they may think that they are completely autonomous along to themselves. they are getting input from some other source than just their own mind.
1: and if you're going to say we don't really need to have law, whether or not you're conscious of it, you've just deferred to another law because in everybody's experience, conflict is present. so the scriptural view of man and creation implies that we have an understanding of why we have conflict. We have an understanding as to why everybody just can't get along. And we can define that, as the Bible does, in terms of sinning against God. Well, God as king, God as creator, God as sovereign has preferences, has likes, has dislikes. He's a person. And if we're not going to acknowledge that whoever's law we're following, we're basically submitting to that entity's or that person's likes or dislikes, then we're going to be very confused in terms of how to make decisions and how to have perspectives on the everyday things that we go through in life.
0: Yes, and another aspect to this that is tremendously important is the idea that the source of law is Inevitably, a source that would consider itself divine. So, whenever you, as Dr. Rushdooney continually pointed out, when you identify the source of law in a society, in a culture, you have identified the God of that culture. Now, why would he make such a statement? Simply because of the fact that when you study history, when you study the development of cultures and societies, it doesn't matter where they are, where they have existed. They have laws, and the laws are inevitably defined by a source that proclaims the right to itself to govern people's behavior. And as that Webster Dictionary definition of 1828 very clearly pointed out, the foundation of law in a society such as these United States were, are prescribed by God and found in Scripture. Now, of course, in other types of societies, the source of law will be, unfortunately, for the time being a source other than God's law in Holy Scripture. It will be the laws of some philosopher, some other rival religion, but inevitably you've got a supreme voice of authority that says you will behave in this manner. So one of the ultimate expressions of this, in if I can get a little bit academic in philosophy, was the philosopher Hegel who saw the state as sort of the ultimate expression of the great spirit And he was the one, I think, who coined the phrase that the state is God walking on the earth. It's the highest expression of man's great aspirations. And so when we say, as we have on a few occasions, that the state sees itself as God, we don't mean that a president or a prime minister or whoever thinks of himself as some sort of Zeus-like being who can cast lightning bolts out of his fingertips. That has nothing to do with it. That's a comic book, cartoonish understanding of divinity when you look at what scripture teaches and how divinity has been understood for thousands of years, the right to define tax, the right to levy laws and tell people how they will behave, the right to govern behavior of subjects, that is a divine attribute. And it is unavoidable in any society.
1: And interestingly enough, because there is no differentiation between the idea of liberty and freedom, which are distinctively, I mean, they're related, but they're distinctively different definitions applying to each one. When you have modern man saying slavery is bad, we can't be slaves, I don't want to be a slave, I want to be free, well, the scripture basically says we're either going to be a slave to God, who is a benevolent God, or we're going to be a slave to someone or something else. So you can't even define grace if you haven't first defined law, because who is issuing the grace if it's not the lawgiver and the lawmaker?
0: And the example I gave earlier, it's exactly what you're talking about. You're either going to be a slave to Pharaoh, or you're going to be a slave to Yahweh, the true God. Whether we're talking about grace, as we are here, or you mentioned liberty, Liberty cannot be understood or defined apart from law, uh, apart from what it looks like to be free. And the thing is, one of the blessings of God's law, apart from the fact that it comes from the only true God, is the fact that it is simple, it is very clear, and this is an occasion where we can also make a distinction that when we talk about the law of God, uh, we're talking about that which is summarized in what people would understand to be the Ten Commandments and how those are applied in society and individual relations. We're not talking about the, the multiplicity of laws that came about after the Jewish captivity in Babylon and the rise of the Talmudic traditions. Those were the things that Jesus was having to deal with in his own ministry. In the Sermon on the Mount, you see this refrain constantly where he would say, you've heard it said X, Y, and Z, but I say unto you. And what's interesting about that, if our listeners would do, uh, make some effort to do the study themselves, He's contrasting when he says that the teachings of the rabbis and the scribes, which are not infallible godly teachings. They are the efforts of men to expand and improve upon God's law. He's contrasting those things with what God's law actually says. And in most of the cases, when he says, but I say unto you, you can find a direct reference to what he has said in Exodus or Deuteronomy or Leviticus or one of the older covenant books.
1: And people have this idea that, Jesus had made up something entirely new as if just look at what appears in your Bible if you have a red letter edition, because those are the only things that are important. And I have encountered people who are only red letter Christians. They're only going to listen to what Jesus says, and everything else falls under the category of suggestion. Well, if you don't understand that everything that Jesus said is consistent with what we call the Old Testament then there's a case for the fact that you are worshiping a different God than the God of Scripture.
0: This might be an appropriate time also to bring up a side to this perhaps that is in some people's minds, and again, I'm not talking about simplistic, immature Christians or nominal Christians, but maybe people who really want to follow the Lord and they have a genuine concern about this is that somewhere perhaps in the background, they have experienced what they would consider to be the unfortunate impact of a legalistic type of behavior levied against them where you know the, the law of God has been made to be something tremendously burdensome to beat them up. In other words it's given a very negative light. Those things are inevitable, I suppose, in some context, because anything we are set our hands to, being in our sinful selves, we can mess it up, we can fail, and that kind of thing can happen. But the law itself is not burdensome. It is meant to define for us as a gracious gift from God himself what it looks like to love him, Jesus, just as Jesus said. And too often, I think, when people talk about legalism and, oh, you're being legalistic, you're being harsh, they don't really understand that there's a difference between how someone may faultingly apply God's law or represent it in a certain kind of attitude versus what God's law actually says and the purpose behind it.
1: You bring up something that is near and dear to my heart because if law is approached as a burden, as a deficit, as something that, yeah, we have to do, but we don't have to like it because who would like it? We've really missed the fact that God giving us his law is an act of grace. The difference between a ruler who he wakes up one morning and now everybody with red hair is acceptable And so the redheads are in. But tomorrow, maybe he had a bad dream about a redhead doing something to him, and now the redheads are bad. See, God's word doesn't change. And the negative aspect of this dispensational view, it says that he does, that he was a mean God here, and he's a nice God here, except they have to throw out whole portions of Scripture where Jesus doesn't make that differentiation. He says, I and the Father are one. So is the Trinity at war with itself? Are they fighting for dominance? When God gives us his law and he says, this is what pleases me, this is what displeases me, this is what happens when you obey, this is what happens when you disobey, that's a very gracious God.
0: And this kind of struggle, this kind of problem goes all the way back to the early history of the church, where you had the rise of teachers who and people who claimed to be followers of Jesus who were promoting a view of his teachings that were completely divorced from the context of Scripture and the biblical tradition in which Jesus taught and practiced his ministry. So you had the rise of a man like Marcion, who was really, really, I think, one of the first to put together a canonical, what he would consider to be a canonical text of the Bible, in which it included, I think, the Psalms and the gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts, and that's it. His point of view was just what you were just saying, which finds its expression in some versions of dispensationalism, that the God of the Old Testament was a mean, vengeful, nasty God, but now there's a different God according to some of these early heretics, and Jesus manifests that God in himself, and he's a God of pure love, pure spirit, and so all of these early heretical ideas were in play thousands of years ago, and they continue to filter up and bubble up on occasion in different theological movements that are stepping away from what the Bible actually teaches.
1: And to go back to the idea of we're not under law anymore, the Amplified version, as you said, it really fleshed out the idea. We're not going to be judged by this law in terms of our entrance into the family of God. The offense of the gospel is you're totally responsible and there's absolutely nothing you on your own can do about it. That's what makes the gospel offensive. That's a very offensive statement. You're responsible, you're to blame, but I'm sorry, there's nothing you can do. But the good news of the gospel is that through Jesus Christ, you're acceptable to the Father. And see, once you understand that, then you say, oh, I'm not being viewed as an outlaw anymore. I'm not an outlaw. I'm not under this condemnation. And anyone who's not in Christ is. So the common refrain you hear from those who accuse others of legalism is, don't condemn me. And I sort of laugh when people say that because I say, you're giving me a whole lot more credit (laughs) than I have. I do not have the power to condemn you or not condemn you, but the Bible says, you are already condemned. The Bible says if you're not in Christ, if you're not on that straight and narrow path, you are under condemnation.
0: And being in Christ and being on that path involves something that in theological terms we call sanctification, which means having been set right with God purely by his grace and mercy, you now are in a relationship to him that will have that mercy and grace manifested in how you behave. And as the catechism teaches, sanctification is a work of God's grace, not an act. It's different from justification and adoption. It is a work which implies that we are continually in our journey with Christ throughout our physical lives, working in greater, greater ways to show our obedience and love for him by keeping his law. like you, Andrea, am a product of the 60s in the sense that we were born in that time frame. And I don't know about you, but I well remember how myself and my contemporaries wanted to be free of the constraints of the religious upbringing that our parents sort of stuff-shirted us into. And I investigated, like a lot of people did, a lot of other religions and alternative philosophies of life. We talked about some of this in an earlier podcast, but I think it's worth mentioning here. I remember a number of people I knew in college at the time who uh, were all into "Ah, this Christianity's nonsense and is so bad and restrictive and oppressive. You know, we want to be free to follow our own way. (laughs) And I remember one or two who got involved with the Hare Krishnas, International Society of Krishna Consciousness. And holy cow, (laughs) you talk about Literally,
1: holy cow.
0: Yeah, I mean, no (laughs) pun intended. I've been clever in spite of myself. No, one minute they look like your average late 60s, early 70s kind of hippy-dippy person, and the next minute their head is shaved, they're vegetarians, they're dressing a certain way, they've got a code of law that they have accepted, even though they said the other one was too oppressive. So I would challenge our listeners. Can you think of any context, any situation where you find yourself? where you are not beholden to some standard of behavior by which you are assessed, by which you are expected to govern yourself. I can't think of any.
1: You know, I teach biblical law classes online. And when I start off with a group of ladies, there's a lot of, but no, wait, that's not true. Or that that seems so wrong. You're putting God in a bad light. Well, once they progress through the study, there comes a point where there's a section in Rush Dooney's Institutes called The Architecture of Life. And it's one of my favorite sections of the book because he compares our lives to a building. And, And a building is going to have a structure. It's going to have a design. And, of course, that design is thoroughly consistent with God's law. And I make the comment that, in truth, no one can violate God's law. And they're going, wait a minute, that's not true. There are people who are violating God's law all over the place. I said, to a limited degree, because you see, God's word never returns to him void. He promises obedience brings blessing and disobedience brings curses or judgment. And so in a very real sense, if you look at Psalm 2, when it says that he laughs and he holds the rulers of the world in derision, God is not worried. What am I going to do? They're not following my law. He's already told us what he's going to do. And that makes true students of the Bible, true students of God's word, prophets. We're prophets. We can tell people the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. We can tell them these things because we've embraced God's law as opposed to looking at it as a burden. We say, we now know how to please our Creator and our Redeemer.
0: You are quite right in saying that God's law is a blessing. And the other side to that, or another part of that, is that when we compare the blessings of God's law with the other systems of law, the humanistic, anti biblical systems of law, we find that inevitably, insofar as they are embraced in ever greater means. They inevitably lead to decline and destruction, and as has been pointed out more than a few times, we are living in a time where the humanistic society of the Western world is currently in a process of imploding on itself. People and systems and societies that follow law other than that given by God inevitably fall into this sort of situation, and this is a great opportunity for us, and this is why, in spite of human frailty and human failing, we are... Greatly optimistic about what God is going to do and has been doing throughout history and bringing about a time where there is righteousness on this earth as a part of of the progress of uh, God's kingdom in this world.
1: And some people ask, well, if it all falls apart, I don't think I'm going to like it. I don't like the idea of war devastating my community, I don't like the idea of the collapse of our monetary system meaning that I lose all my retirement or anything like that. The point being, as long as we understand that we were created to glorify God and to serve him, then whatever part he wants for us is the part we should say, Lord, tell me what to do and I'll do it. But in the interim, as we're experiencing the forbearance of God, because it hasn't all collapsed, We should prepare ourselves to be the builders, those who can, when it does fall apart, we'd be like a beacon or a light where people say, These people seem to have some answers. And we already understand and have applied God's law in our families, in our communities, so that we become those that can say to people, This is how God's word says we should live. And that instead of being upset at humanism collapsing, we rejoice in God's word being kept, he kept his promise that the righteous would prevail and the unrighteous would not.
0: And that was certainly the experience and the practice of our earliest brothers and sisters in Christ in the Roman Empire in the early, early days of the church. Again, as Rastuni has pointed out many times, the growth of the earliest church was not based on Christian apologists standing on corners debating pagan apologists or pagan philosophers. The real growth of the church came about through the diaconal ministry and the creation of an alternative, biblically-based society and culture within the framework of the crumbling Roman society, so that as Rome continued to decay and fall, the only people that had any real answers about what to do in life were the Christians. They were the ones who were caring for the sick. There was no provision for, to do anything like that. Part of the Romans, Christians were the ones who set up the first hospitals, So uh, this is very much the sort of things that we ought to be about is kingdom building and, and recognizing that God will work out his program through us and through our children. I want to mention one other thing before we wrap up, and that's the relationship of the grace of the law of God and personal assurance. That's a big ticket item for some people is, you know, how can I really be assured that I am saved? How can I have the assurance that God loves me? And a lot of people beat themselves up over that. You can find volumes and volumes of books on, on the, just that one topic of assurance. Well, my suggestion is, based on my understanding of Scripture and the things that I have come to understand, if you ever have a problem with assurance, if you have any doubts about your relationship to God, well, obey his word, obey his law. Do the sort of things that God's law says you should be doing. And your doing of those things will redound to your having a blessed assurance that you are indeed a part of his covenant family.
1: And I'd like to make some book recommendations, because we typically do at the end of our podcast, a very digestible book that Rush Dooney wrote is entitled Law and Liberty. And he does an excellent job of going through various aspects of how the law relates to the family, the individual, the civil order, the church, etc. And it's a good primer. And for those who read it and really embrace it and say, I get it now, and I'd really like to share this with people who I know who I think would embrace this idea, we've put together on the Calcedon site a study guide to go along with it. And so if anybody who's listening is interested in that study guide, the PDF form, just email out of the question podcast at gmail.com and I'll see to it that you get it. A bigger study, taking a little bit more time than Law and Liberty, would be Rush Duny's Institutes of Biblical Law, Volume 1. That's going to take a little bit more time, and I never recommend people race through that book because each section gives you a lot to chew on. And you have to ask yourself the question, and should, how does this apply to me today? So it keeps biblical law outside the ivory tower and puts it right into your everyday life. And then, Charles, you mentioned the diaconate and how the evidence of the people of God is to practice pure and undefiled religion, caring for the widows and the orphans. And he has a book entitled In His Service, which would be a great, companion to both of the other books in terms of, so how do we as the people of God manifest the charge God has given us to be holy and to make disciples?
0: Excellent recommendations. I would simply add to those for people who want a more in-depth study of the scriptural passages that I mentioned earlier. Dr. Rustuni produced commentaries both on the Gospel of John and on the Book of Romans, and you can find those available in the Chalcedon store the Gospel of John, and a separate volume on Romans and Galatians, and right along with the Institutes of Biblical Law, the Chalcedon Foundation published a few years ago a separate booklet that contains the introduction to the Institutes of Biblical Law and published it as a little 30-page pamphlet called Faith and Obedience, an Introduction to Biblical Law, and that is a very accessible, easily carried around resource that you can have access to.
1: And in my experience, once people get this, first of all, it's a huge relief And it opens the door to, oh, I now know how I can fulfill the Great Commission without doing things that seem so foreign and weird to me, like standing outside the baseball game with a sign that says, repent. In other words, I can actually have ways in which I can relate to the people who are closest to me, who I care about and I interact with. That's really where Calcedon has put the bulk of its emphasis over the 50-plus years it's been existence, it's to equip the self-governing Christian to do those things which God commands him to do.
0: Well, that will bring us to the end of another podcast. We thank our listeners for tuning in, and we look forward to getting together with you next time. Thank you, Andrea. Talk to you next time, Charles. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, visit www.kingdomdrivenfamily.com.